Genesis chapter 3, and starting in verse 14 again. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and in the dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I'll pray before we carry on again. Father, Lord, just as we turn to your word this morning, we thank you for it, but Lord, we just ask for your, your strength, for your guidance, uh, that you would direct my thoughts, and Lord, that we would understand you better and, and your will for us, um, in particular for us as men this morning, as this is the topic that we're looking at. So Lord, we just... Again, we ask that you would work in us and help us to grow closer to you through this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, as we looked at this, um, you know, we've been looking at, we looked at the serpent, then we looked at the, the woman, and now we're looking at the man, and last week we talked about work. And just the fact that it wasn't that God instituted work as a punishment for sin, it was the difficulties involved in work that got started because of sin. It was the, the thorns and the thistles and the weeds and, and the sweat. Like, work became difficult. God had, in fact, planned for us to work even prior to um, the sin entering in. He put man in the garden for the purpose of working. Uh, this week we were looking at uh, some... No, not some. Isaiah 65, in our Bible study, uh, as we're looking at those last couple chapters of Revelation, and just reading through this passage in Isaiah 65, it's describing the millennial kingdom. When, when Christ returns and he rules and reigns for a thousand years, there's this description here of that time period, of what, what it'll be like. And I just thought I'd add... This morning, 
if I can find it again. It starts, I'll, I'll, I'll read the section of it here for you. It says, But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem. And the joy and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. This is the part that I wanted to look at. It says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Even in the millennial kingdom, when Christ is fixing our world, he's basically returning it to this condition where his intention was in Eden. And we see we are still going to be building, we're going to build houses, and we're going to plant vineyards, we're going to we're still going to till the ground. We're still going to grow our own food and raise our own animals and, and make things. Work is going to carry on. It's just going to remove some of the difficulties that go with the work. And so work, now, we, we slightly discussed this, and I don't have a, a complete answer. I suspect that in eternity, we will continue doing some form of work. I don't see why God would change his entire plan, his entire design for us is to work. And so why not carry that into eternity? Um, I'm not sure I have any scripture that backs that up, but I suspect it would continue on, seeing as it, that was the creation initially and, and through the millennial kingdom. So, But we get to this point, like, okay, we, we as men in particular are designed to work. And part of what I mentioned last week is we get satisfaction from our work. If, if we don't work, if we don't do things, if we don't accomplish things, we start to get depressed and we can misplace the source of, of those feelings of, of insufficiency, right? That depression and that, that lack in our lives can usually be filled if you just get off of your blessed assurance and go and do something. <laughs> we didn't need to get up and, and go and do. And that was the instruction to him that stole. He says, go and steal no more and work with your hands that thing which is good. It's like, don't just sit and study. Like, it's not, there's nothing wrong with, there's people that are designed to, to study. Um, to, there's the intellectuals that that is their forte. But it says to work with your hands that thing which is good. Even in the Isaiah 65, it talks about them working with their hands. God really did intend for us to work with our hands, to do something productive. And so I believe it's important for us um, to, to be productive and to, to do work with our hands, even if our profession isn't a manual labor kind of job. Another portion, and I don't know how clear I was last week, but when God says to work, and the whole 
idea of working is we're to work, but it doesn't have to be at a nine-to-five job. The, this idea of a, a career where I go out and I, I do this thing for this company and they pay me in return, like that's a portion of what we see in Scripture, but it's not like that's their day-to-day and it's a six-day-a-week career and I work this many hours and, and that's my work. It's like that's just a portion of what we do. It's how we supply for our family, but a part of that work is we come home and we have a home to take care of. We have a house to fix and maintain and we have vehicles and, you know, like kids and things to do. We need to do things outside of just our nine to five job. Like the whole idea is to work. Um, And he gives us that. I didn't mention it last week. I'm not sure the exact context, but Jesus, in one of his discussions with people, is like, is there not 12 hours in a day? He asked that question. It's like the the thought is that, well, if he's asking, is there not twelve hours in a day? It's like, shouldn't we be doing something, <laughs> being productive for twelve hours of the day? Like that's only half the day. There's still another twelve hours left. Like to, <laughs> and, and you shouldn't be sleeping for twelve hours. You don't need that much. Anyway, I'll I'll carry on. <laughs> so. There are some additional requirements of man, and this is, I, I did the women first, and the, the thing in the garden and the punishment for women had a lot to do with their marriage relationship, right? It's, it's the childbearing and the subjection to their husband. And so I promised that I would work on the husbands, just to be fair here. So I just want to look at a few of the responsibilities of a husband. And I'm going to Matthew chapter 19, just as a beginning point here. And I could have gone to Genesis chapter 2 for this exact same point, but Jesus is answering. (laughs) Um, And in his answer, he basically just quotes scripture. And so, chapter 19, verse 5 in Matthew says, And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And the, the question he's answering is about divorce. And he's like, well, here's the issue, is God designed you to get married, and when you get married, he says God is the one that joined you together. This isn't an institution that man created. This is something that God created, and when he joins you together, it's not up to men to take that apart. It's not your decision anymore. That God intended for that to be a permanent union. And so that's the whole point that Jesus is making. Um, and we can, we can gather a couple other things. And one of those things, in verse 4, he said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is like just basic human biology and 
natural processes is there is male and female, and it is a male and a female that are to be joined together in marriage. Anything outside of that is outside of God's intention. And it's very simple to see that in Scripture. So we should just make a point of stating that when we're at this point. The point I wanted to make for us as men, though, when we go to get married, he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. Get out of your mom's basement. (laughs) It's time to go. Make your own home. Make your own family. It's time to separate from that parental control and to make a family unit of your own because you need that freedom to, to do that. And so this is just a part of the growing up process of becoming a man and starting your own family. As you, you move out from your parents' home and you start your own. And so that's a, an important thing that we need to do as men is just establish ourselves, make our own way, earn our own keep, and supply our own home for our family. Just gonna, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. It is where we went um, looking at the instruction to women. We'll look at it, the instruction to men here as well. Ephesians 5, and we get to verse 25. I'll read just a couple of verses here. Right down to the end of the chapter. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, that every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. He spends a fair bit of time telling the husbands to love your wives and explaining the picture here is that the whole point of marriage was that we can understand God's love for us in when Christ came and was sacrificed on the cross for us in Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like, when we were the least deserving of it, in our worst state is when Christ went to the cross for us, when he took our sin and died in our place. That's when Christ did that. That's the love that he gave. Men, when your wife (laughs) is not the pleasant, wonderful, loving, submissive, kind, loving, you know, like, she's not that easy-to-love person that you first met. 
we are still to love her <laughs> as Christ loved the church and gave himself, like, in our worst state, Christ died for us. In your wife's worst mood, <laughs> worst attitude, every, like, in her worst day, you are to love her. And it has nothing to do with, does she deserve it? <laughs> it's, you owe it to her. You are to love her the way that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Like, this whole idea of Christ gave himself for us, like, he died. He took all of your burden on him. Are you a man? Some of you aren't. <laughs> but if you're a man sitting here and you have a wife or you're preparing to have a wife, you need to be a man. You need to be willing to bear somebody else's burden, to take whatever load that marriage comes with is yours to carry and yours to bear the brunt of whatever the consequences that are attached to that are. You, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be hardships because you're married. She's going to bring some problems into that relationship. And the whole point is that Christ took all of our sin. He paid for the whole thing. And that's the example to us as a husband is we are to sacrifice ourselves to whatever it takes to supply the needs of the wife, to take care of her the way that Christ has taken care of the church. Look at a couple other passages here on that. 1 Timothy chapter Chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 8. Um, verse 7 says, And these things give in charge, that they may be blameless. So here's some instruction that we need to give. It says, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So if you're... My wife goes out and works. <laughs> okay? My wife does go out and work at times. She doesn't have a full-time job, but she goes out and works and, and helps supply some of the income for our home so that I can do this better than I could if I was working elsewhere full-time. Um... But the whole idea is like, if you're not the provider for your home, if you're sitting there and your wife has to do it because you're too lazy, you're worse than an infidel. <laughs> like, the opposite. Like, not just non. I get the impression from the implication here. When you say infidel, it's, it's more than just like an, an unbeliever. It's like an anti-believer. It's like someone that's opposed to the gospel is the impression I get. And like you're worse than the worst atheist that is like actively working against Christianity if you're not providing for your family. You need to be the provider. And that goes in more than just money, paying the bills. There's, 
there's more needs in a home than just paying the bills. And I'm going to look at this a little bit deeper. There's another verse. We'll go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to end up hitting some current issues in our world now, <laughs> which I hate doing, but we have to at times. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse... 1 Peter chapter 3 will be better than 2 Peter. Verse 7. It says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So he gives a reason at the end of this verse, that your prayers be not hindered. There's a responsibility that we need to take as men. And if we're not doing the things that God instructs us to do, if we're not being the man that God intends us to be, our relationship with God is going to be affected by that. You can't be the spiritual man that you need to be if you're not being the husband and father that you're supposed to be, according to Scripture. And so we need to look at these things, and we need to make sure that we're doing the things that we need to do. And I should point, like, there's some young women here. Well, I'm not talking to you as a person what you need to do, but I am talking to you of what you need to be looking for as a husband. Because if that's not who you're marrying, you're going to suffer and have troubles down the road because he's not what he should be. And so make sure that the guy that you're looking at is capable of being the man that he's supposed to be, that he's capable of being the spiritual leader that you need him to be. It's too late after you're married. Where am I? Um, First Peter 3, 7 says, Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel. Now, I've used a, the analogy before of, you know, we have our, our regular dishes at home, and then we have our fine china, the, the expensive, we don't. <laughs> Some people do. They have their fine china, like the expensive stuff, the stuff that we take care of, grandma's fine china that got passed down from the generation to generation. We take special care of it. It goes in the special cabinet, and it only comes out on special occasions, and it doesn't go in the dishwasher. We have to wash it by hand. And we're careful with this stuff. And we don't give it to the kids because they may drop it and they may break it. And we give it that extra honor because it's a weaker vessel. It's more fragile. And so we, we actually give it extra care. And that's important. And I would stress that that's how we ought to consider our wife. as When we look at her as a, a weaker vessel, it's like, she is more valuable than all the other junk around. It's like, I'm going to take extra special care of her. Now, that's, that's the intent here. And we can look at this in the idea of like the, the weaker vessel. Um, she's not less valuable in any way, shape, or form. And especially when it comes to salvation, uh, we get into Romans, and I can't remember the exact verse, but it says there is, Neither Jew nor Greek, nor you know, bond or free, male or female. Like, as far as salvation goes, like, it doesn't matter what you are, what your background is, your, your gender, nothing of this matters. 
salvation is available to all in the same way. And we're equal in our value to God as a, as a soul that he's created and wants to save. But physically, there is a difference between a man and a woman. We're discovering that as we now have men who decide they're going to call themselves a woman and they go and join women's sports. And anybody ever watch the MMA fight between the trans whatever, the guy that called himself a woman and went into the women's MMA and almost killed the woman that he was fighting because he was so much stronger physically. Um, watching uh, Ben Shapiro this week, and he's talking about tennis. And there's a, there's a, I don't know what the woman's name is, the top women's tennis player. And someone was talking about her and calling her, she's the top women's tennis player. So why don't you just call her, she's the, the top tennis player? Because she's not. There was a, and he used the example, it's like she went practicing and she went against the 200th, you heard me, <laughs> the 200th ranked male player. In two rounds, she scored one point. She is not the best player in the world because she is a weaker vessel. She doesn't have the strength, the stamina, the speed as the male player that is at equal standing among men versus women. So there is not an equal when it comes to physical things. Men are physically bigger, stronger, typically better at these sports. And I'll just throw one more example of the guy that was working for me as a mechanic in his somewhat younger days. He was, he would bike. He was on his mountain bike all the time. And he did a lot of long distance biking. You can compare yourself by your distance that you can bike and you time it and versus the records of the typical athletes in the world. He was just a regular guy that doing his thing he was doing equal to the top women bikers in the world. That's not putting women down. It's just this is the nature how God created us. Men are stronger. So an average guy can typically outperform some of the top women in a physical realm. This is the way it is. Now, if we establish that, like, I'm not lifting men up. I'm just like, here's just reality. What's our responsibility as a man in this case, then? Treat the woman as the weaker vessel. Take care of her because she needs you to do that. When there's a circumstance and you... Did you know Thunder Bay's murder rate is one of the highest in the country? <laughs> Like, we live in a terribly violent city, or just outside of. <laughs> Things happen here that we like to pretend don't happen. Um, we live in a world where violence happens to people. 
If you're out somewhere and somebody comes up attacking you and you're with your wife, what are you going to do? If someone grabs her, what are you going to do? Are you capable of doing something? You're supposed to be the guy who can provide for and protect like she's the weaker vessel, as in I need to be able to take care of her. If you're this scrawny, weak, useless guy that can't physically do something, if something fell on her and it weighs a couple hundred pounds, can you lift it off of her? With my knee that buckles, I can still lift a 200-pound log, right? Like, you, you should be able to work and do something. You should be able to physically do things to save, to help another person in need. And there's, you know, whether it's a violent attacker or some, you know, a rotten tree fell on someone or you, whatever, like things happen in our lives that requires strength to overcome. Do you have the strength to be able to do that? I'm going to point you to um, 2 Samuel here. I want to look at... (laughs) This is important for us to realize. A part of Scripture that... The emphasis here. 2 Samuel chapter 23... It seems like Christian men are scared to be men. I've I've said before, like, I can't stand even looking at most of the preachers in the world because they're a bunch of pansies that, like, there's no strength, there's no callus, there's no, like, they don't do anything. They sit in the office and they read and they study and they, they counsel and, well, could you do something physical if needed? And most of them couldn't. That's a problem, according to what Scripture elevates as far as what a man should be. And so, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we have David, and here we're describing some of his men. Verse 8 says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. This is who he surrounded himself with. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was a dino, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. <laughs> I'd like to see you do that, guys. <laughs> After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. And this is why he's tough, because his dad's name is Dodo. <laughs> but the Ahonite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away. Everybody left. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand claved to the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to spoil. So the guy takes on the whole army himself and then everybody comes back to get the goods of it after Verse 11 says, And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herarite. 
And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Now, these are the three mightiest men. I want to look at, we go down to verse 18 here. He carries on describing some more of his men. Verse 18 says, And Abisha, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the chief among three, he lifted up his spear against three hundred and slew them, and had the name among three. He was not most honorable of three. Sorry, was he not most honorable of three? Therefore, he was their captain. Howbeit, he attained not unto the first three. He could only kill 300 guys by himself, not 800. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, he doesn't attain to the first three because he's not as good. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab, who went down, he went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in the time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among three mighty men. He was more honorable than the thirty, but he attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard. You know, he, the rest of this chapter names the other 30. <laughs> These are the men that David surrounds himself. And it describes him as honorable. Not as a violent, like, maniac. Like These aren't just bloodthirsty guys, a bunch of psychopaths. These are men, when called upon will stand their ground and fight any odds that come against them. And they are called honorable. If your family is standing there, will you fight to the death, regardless of the odds? That's what God's calling an honorable man. That's what he's being elevated in Scripture as an honorable man, is a man who has the strength and the will to do what it takes to defeat whatever the enemy standing in front of them is. Are they generally violent men? I don't think so. They're called honorable. They're, these are valiant, like these are good men that are being elevated in Scripture as something, like he describes it as he didn't attain to the first three. Like this is something to to strive for is to be a man like these men. We can look at these examples in Scripture of men who were men. Um, I didn't go look up the verses, but um, Samuel the prophet, so we're in the same book here. Saul goes out and has this battle and he captures the king and he brings him back. And God had instructed to kill everybody, kill all of everything. And he's got all this stuff and he comes back. And this king, Agag, I believe is his name. And so he, 
is there and he thinks, the scripture tells us, he thought, surely the worst is over. My, I'm going to be spared. And so he comes, Samuel, the prophet, the preacher, <laughs> comes up. It's like, who's this? What's he doing here? You were supposed to kill him. You know what he does? Is he takes his sword and he hews him to pieces. There's what your preacher should be. He should be capable. Uh, dare you to challenge me. No. <laughs> I was at a... I was at a maybe I, I think I'm better than I am, but I'm... I was at a first aid course and one of the things like... The scenario they gave, they got these two guys, you you enter a bar, you come to this call, and you enter a bar, and there's these two guys fighting. And so then they stop, and they're reviewing the scenario, and well, what happens if if you try to get involved and break this up? Who's going to get hurt? I said, well, they are. (laughs) That's my attitude, is like, if you... You should at least have the attitude that it's them that's going to get hurt. Because if you think that it's you that's going to get hurt, you're going to be scared to actually try to do something about it. You should be a defender, a provider. You should be a man that people can look up to. And that's, I believe, the intention of Scripture. We're in Samuel. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4... I think it's interesting that this passage now, (laughs) this isn't God's people. This is the the Philistines that we're going to be looking at here. And they become exactly what I'm describing. So, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So these guys are scared. (laughs) They know what God is capable of. Read the next verse. Be strong. Quit yourselves like men. O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Somebody in the Philistine camp says, you bunch of wusses, get off your butt and go and fight. Be a man. He says, quit you like, we don't say quit you like man. When, when we say quit, we think we're going to stop doing something. What this means is you're going to finish the job. When you quit, it means the job's done. <laughs> Get out and fight. 
And somebody rallied that group. It's like, you guys need to stand up and be men. And they did. And God, in the camp of the Hebrews, I'm not going to say he couldn't stop them, but he didn't stop them. They were being better men than what Israel was being at the time. They were doing what Israel should have been doing. Israel wasn't doing the right thing, obviously. Someone's going to say, oh, you're just looking at Old Testament stuff. God's changed the plan for us. Okay, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Well, there's a time and a place. (laughs) And when your family is standing there or somebody is getting hurt, that is not the time to turn the other cheek. When some object is laying on somebody that you need to be able to lift off of them, it's not the time to turn the other cheek. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. And this is, this is interesting. This is, the Apostle Paul is trying to close off this letter that he's writing to the church. And he's just spewing out like a few last thoughts. <laughs> there's, there's no cohesion in this passage. It's just like, there's this, oh, and, and this, and this. So he just says a few random things, and here's one of the things that he says in verse 13. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. This is in Paul's instruction to a New Testament church, to the men in the church. Stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. Just like... Philistines in that quit you like men like stand up and finish the job and be strong you need to be strong men if you're not there's something you can do about that (laughs) stop eating some of what you're eating and start lifting more than you're lifting and maybe take some training on how to defend somebody There's some things we can do to be able to be the strong man that can provide and protect for our family. I'm running short on time, but I don't have a whole other message in this part. So there's one other aspect of being a man and a husband, and that would be to be a father. And there's... I'll semi-quote a couple of verses rather than turning there just to save us some time on it. But Ephesians chapter 6, first couple of verses. And then again in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Paul's, again, he's talking to, to families. Um, Ephesians 6, he starts off quoting uh, of the Ten Commandments, children, obey your parents. But then he turns to the parents and says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger. It says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 21. And in Colossians, I, I'm going to turn to the Colossians one, because I can never quite remember the, the words. Colossians 3, verse 21. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, 
lest they be discouraged. There can be a problem. There's, a, there's an issue with some of us tough, manly men who don't have a soft side whatsoever and have no compassion for our children and we expect greatness of them and have no grace in the lives of our children. And it says, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. If you make life so hard on your kids and have such high expectations with no grace whatsoever, no, no apparent love for them, they're going to get discouraged. They're not going to drive to be like you as like to anybody but him. <laughs> you need to be an example in not just this tough guy kind of demeanor. Like there's, there's more sides to this. You can be the tough guy when you need to be the tough guy. And I would strongly encourage you to be able to be that. But you need to be the compassionate, caring father that's guiding your children and helping them to grow up and to learn to become a good father or a good wife, a good husband. That's our job as parents and as fathers in particular. And it speaks to fathers, provoke not. We have a tendency as men to be a little more harsh than our wives. And so we need to curtail that a little bit sometimes and not be so provoking of our kids that they just don't know what to do anymore and they just give up. Don't be like that. Um, Get into First Timothy chapter three gives the requirements of a pastor and of a deacon, and for both of those roles, he says to to rule your home well, have your children in subjection, in all gravity, and it's like the whole idea is as a father, like we got to figure out where the balance is between teaching our kids how to behave, how not to be. One of, the, one of the child-rearing instructions that we received when our kids were little, thankfully, we knew we were idiots. We knew we didn't know what we were doing, and so we looked for as much guidance in how to raise these kids as we could possibly get. And the, the instruction that we got the most is to train them so they're not... Um, ah, words... Um, offensive, that's the word. Make your kids not offensive to others. There's some parents in the world that need to figure that one out. We need to train our kids to not be offensive. And it, like that's kind of what I see this idea in 1 Timothy 3 for the pastors and the deacons to raise your kids so that they're respectful of people doesn't mean they can't have fun when it's time to have fun. Like we, send the, like we let the kids run and play and scream and shout. But when it's time to come and sit down, like they need to be able to come and sit down. Right? Like there's, there's a time for this and a time for that. Go back to Ecclesiastes. You'll, you'll see that. The last thing here, as fathers, um, if you want to just look at, there's a, two verses in Proverbs, chapter 19. 
19, Proverbs 19, verse 14. It says, House and riches are the inheritance of fathers. And a prudent wife is from the Lord. But so he speaks of a house and riches as an inheritance of fathers. And go back to chapter 13, verse 22. Like I said, sometimes I wish when he wrote Proverbs that he was a little bit lengthier in his statements and put it all together in one spot, but it's not the way it is. So verse 22 in Proverbs 13 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of a sinner is laid up for the just. But, but a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. So ask this question. Um, where's retirement <laughs> in Scripture? The only guy I see in Scripture that ever retired was the guy that Jesus is, he laid up in store, he built new barns and said, you know, I can relax and I can enjoy the, my wealth. And the next day, he died. <laughs> that's, that's the only guy I know of that retired. <laughs> um, we can retire from a, a career, but we don't stop working. We don't stop providing. Um, we should be able to provide an inheritance for, says our children's children. Like, there should be enough left over that when your kids are done, like, they're passing it on to their kids as well. Now, that doesn't always go well, but, but that's kind of like we should be that diligent in our work and in providing for our families. My last point here, I know I'm long. Except, Psalm 127 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, the whole point is like, we can do all the right things, but if we exclude God, <laughs> there is no guaranteed outcome. God is the one that provides the outcome. He gives us some expectations, like, you should be doing this. And the idea is like, if you do this, God will bless that, and he'll provide the outcome. <laughs> But don't think that you did it yourself. It's God that does it. It's God that provides. And this chapter, all of five verses, the next three verses says, Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed but they shall speak with the enemies in the gates. That's an interesting thing. Our, our culture, our world right now, you know, we, we have, I can't believe how many of our friends have large families, like seven to ten kids. To us, that's normal. But you go talk to any of those families and their experience in the world People look at them like they're wackos. People are like, how many kids do you have? <laughs> like, like there's something wrong with having children. That's, 
God's whole plan is like, have children, be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing to have kids. And as many as, them, as God gives you is a good thing. That's God's blessing. Don't let people take that away from you. We need to... Families with big, like, with lots of kids, big families, typically can't do all the things that some of those of us, like, we've only got the two kids. They're hardly a hindrance in life, right? Like, if we want to travel somewhere, you stick the two kids in the back seat of this $150 Ford Focus that we bought, and we drove to Florida. No big deal, <laughs> literally. <laughs> It was no big deal. It wasn't this great expense for us to haul our two kids anywhere we wanted to go and do whatever we want to do. We want to go on a canoe trip. Well, you could fit all four of us in the same boat if we wanted to. You go fishing, like, you know, a 12-foot boat is enough for the whole family. You get yourself 10 kids, it's like, well, now we need a bus just to get us all anywhere at the same time. It's... You know, watching Jeff over the years, like, the vehicles, like, try to find a vehicle. I remember the old Dodge vans and the the rust that just develops and the things falling apart. It's like, well, what do you get? Like, there's only uh, so many options of vehicles that can hold a family of, well, I don't know if there were ever 12 at home at the same time, but, like, 11, 11 right? Like, so, you know, like, there's challenges here. We can't. Imagine the average family that does a normal, normal, normal Christmas celebration with presents and all this stuff. Well, what are you buying 10 kids? Like, you can't afford all this stuff that the normal people give, right? And so sometimes, like, people get discouraged and, like, well, we can't do as much and we can't give as much. We can't provide as much. Like... Well, there's different ways and different expectations. Like, the way we spoil children in our society is just ridiculous. We ought not to be spending that kind of money on frivolous things for our kids, right? Like, there's some more important things in life and some more important lessons that they can learn in a big family and appreciate that lifestyle. And, you know, Jeff's kids are some of the most productive people I know. So there's some advantages to that big family. Um, they learned how to work. They learned how to provide. <laughs> they learned the, the need for some of these things. So it's a blessing, and God calls it a blessing to have a big family and lots of kids. Men, young men, the goal should be to have a family. <laughs> And to provide for that family the best that you're able to. Let's go to church. The mic finally came on. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the, the scriptures, the instructions to men, the examples of men that you have elevated in scripture as, as being honorable and the strength and the courage that those men show. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to have that kind of courage, that kind of honor, but also to be kind and gentle with our wives and with our children, 
when the time requires that as well. Help us to be the example that you would have us to be, Lord. So again, we commit this to you. We pray that you would help us to grow in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.